African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. In the, in the headlines, nationalities of passengers on board an Egypt air flight that disappeared released. Self-declared independent state of Somalia, Somaliland calls for international recognition on its 25th anniversary. And South Africa increases security measures to help wipe out illegal fishing activity in South African waters. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. The nationalities of the passengers on board an Egypt air flight that disappeared over the Mediterranean Sea have been released. The airline says the passengers included 30 Egyptians, 15 French citizens, one Briton, two Iraqis, as well as people from Canada, Belgium, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Algeria, Sudan, Chad and Portugal. Egyptian civil aviation authorities say the plane probably crashed into the sea. The Airbus A320 aircraft was flying from Paris to Cairo when it disappeared from the radar. Somaliland, the self-declared independent state of Somalia, has celebrated its 25th independence anniversary. The region's leaders used the celebration to call on the international community to accept the reality which they say has existed for 25 years. President Ahmed Solano called on the international community, the European Union, the United States, the African Union and the Arab League to recognize their rights and the country. Although not recognized as a sovereign state, Somaliland declared its independence from Somalia on the 18th of May 1991. UN Humanitarian Affairs Chief Stephen O'Brien says the world needs to pay more attention to the massive humanitarian crisis unfolding in Niger. O'Brien was speaking after a two-day fact-finding mission to the northwest African country. Meanwhile, O'Brien speaking on reports that one of the Chibok schoolgirls abducted by Boko Haram two years ago had been found, said the news have generated excitement across Nigeria. He says multiple UN agencies were working extremely closely on a local and national level to help free all people held by Boko Haram. The news of one of the Chibok girls being uh, found and being returned is, of course, something which gives people a higher degree of confidence and hope. But it is a quiet excitement. There is a deep recognition that there are thousands more that must now also be found. We're all working night and day to try and do that. 
South Africa's Minister for Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, Senza Nizokwana, says increased security measures have been implemented to help wipe out illegal fishing activity in South African waters. He says a helicopter has been dispatched to scan and monitor vessel activity. Last week, nine foreign vessels suspected of illegal fishing were spotted between KwaZulu-Natal and the Eastern Cape coastline. One of them was confiscated and taken to Cape Town. The other eight escaped. Minister Zokwana elaborates on the efforts made in combating commercial fishing activity in the country. In the past, there have been vessels that have been apprehended fishing illegally. And my view and, and, and principle is that if we, we catch a vessel fishing, we must deal with them severely where possible. They should forfeit that vessel. Make sure that we don't allow that. The recent incident, I'm happy that uh, I'm told that charges have been laid against the captain of the vessel who is now in custody. And finally, there is a low to moderate risk that the Zika virus will spread to Europe during the next few months, according to the latest assessment from the World Health Organization. So far in Latin America, nine countries have reported infections among pregnant women due to the mosquito-borne virus, which has been linked to serious birth defects. World Health Organization's Regional Director for Europe, Dr. Susanna Jacob, says that countries which faced even a moderate risk of a Zika outbreak needed to strengthen national capacities. Recapping the top stories, the nationalities of passengers on board an Egypt air flight that disappeared have been released. The self-declared independent state of Somalia, Somaliland, has called for international recognition on its 25th anniversary. And South Africa increases security measures to help wipe out illegal fishing activity in the country's waters. Good news for our listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-447-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, you're listening to us right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And thank you for joining us. And uh, today we're looking at an environmental story. And remember, if you're listening to us, you can contact us and give us your thoughts. You can even interact with us on Twitter at uh, Channel Africa One or at African Dialogue. At African Dialogue is our main uh, Twitter handle where you can interact with us during the program. Well, today we're looking at this data that has been released uh, that 80% of people living in urban areas that monitor air pollution are exposed to air quality levels which exceed the World Health Organization's limits. So we're looking at that concerning uh, topic. I mean, the World Health Organization has released the data that also shows that more than 1 billion people live in countries that do not monitor the air that they breathe. Now, if you're an ordinary uh, human being like me, you get worried that fact that there's no real monitoring, especially when we're moving in this dynamic where people are speaking about uh, gas emissions 
emissions and uh, global climate change is a huge topic. Now, this is a cause of concern as air, outdoor air pollution kills up to 3.3 million people each year and the trend is not changing. Now, according to analysis, poverty is also connected to air pollution in countries as of the world's poorest 50 countries by GDP per capita, 35 are not monitoring air in any of their cities. So those are big statistics and worrying statistics. So we're going to look at things from an African perspective and see if we can unpack what's happening in this regard. We've got Professor Eugene Kencross, who is a chemical engineer and who's also got a whole lot of experience in issues of air quality. Robin Hugo joins us on the line as well, an attorney and program head of pollution and at climate change at the Center for Environmental Rights. Also joining us on the line to give us things from a health perspective, we've got Dr. Rebecca Garland, who is from the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, and also another expert in terms of environmental issues and air pollution. We've got on the line joining us uh, from Cape Town, if I'm not mistaken, Professor Harold Onigan, who's on the line. Now let me start this conversation with you, Professor Eugene uh, Cancross, in terms of looking at the issue of of air pollution. Now, when you look at some of the statistics that I've mentioned, I've just mentioned that more than 1 billion people live in countries that don't monitor air pollution or the air that they breathe. This is according to these numbers from the World Health Organization. How kind of crucial is this? Uh, well, uh, if you don't monitor, you won't know what's happening. And uh, it's clear that um, from anyone living in, in a in a city, a typical city in Africa, that the air is polluted, but without monitoring, you don't know how badly it's affecting you. Now, do we have any mechanisms in terms of technologies that can actually do this? Because some people would say, hey, we just don't have access, especially as African countries, to technologies that monitor air pollution. Professor? Uh, Well, there are emerging methods of using satellite uh, data to, to do an estimate of uh, air pollution levels, uh, uh, at least for for dust levels uh, um, across the globe, and uh, that approach might help. Mm. Now, let me move to you, Robin Hugo, in terms of looking at it from an environmental perspective. How worrying are these figures? And looking at things at an African perspective, it's kind of worrying to see that as much as we would think that uh, issues of air pollution are central and people are monitoring because of air emissions and the idea that we've had this kind of global call for climate change, it seems like uh, from this data that we're seeing, that change is very slow, Robin. Yes, um, hi, Benjamin. Certainly, it's extremely worrying for us. I mean, South Africa is one of the few jurisdictions in the world that has the constitutional environmental rights. So that means that everyone is entitled to a life to live in an environment that doesn't harm their health and well-being and to have the environment protected. But air pollution in South Africa is, is bad, particularly in certain hotspot areas one of which is the Mpumalanga High Salt, which has got one of the world's highest pollution levels, regular exceedances of standards that are set to protect human health, which means that on a daily basis, people are being exposed to, to dangerous levels of air pollution. Mm. 
And let me move to you, Professor Harold, on again. In terms from your perspective, what's worrying for you when you look at these kind of trends whereby we're still not taking air pollution after decades and decades of concern? It's still not something that we take seriously as countries. Um, I'm going to challenge uh, some of these uh, suppositions. Sure, First of sure. all, um, just in the recent years, um, our Department of Environmental Affairs has started to take the uh, situation of air pollution uh, seriously. Uh, secondly, uh, the um, statement that the Mpumalanga half of is one of the highest uh, pollution areas in the world is uh, is an exaggeration which our research has shown is, is not true. There are occasional exceedances of the SO2 and NOx standards, but by far the largest uh, exposure of humans to air pollution is due to domestic coal burning and wood burning in the homes. What we have advanced in the past years is the relationship between source activities such as domestic burning, driving motor cars, and the concentrations in the air. So while we do need to monitor what is far more important and the DEI is now doing is to start devising strategies for controlling and managing the sources of air pollution. Just monitoring by itself doesn't prevent air pollution or its consequences. Mm. Let me bring in... uh, If I may uh, jump in there, Benjamin. Sure, go ahead before I move on to uh, Dr. Garland. uh, Anagon, that should have mentioned is uh, that... uh, Industrial emissions, you know, uh, South Africa, for example, has uh, coal-burning um, power stations as the major source of its electricity. And uh, these and other industrial activities emit a huge quantity of uh, air pollutants into the air as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll come back to that particular issue because that's one seems it's a big debate and how we can actually move around this huge energy mix that is focused on in terms of the South African situation. But let me move on to you, Dr. Rebecca Garland. Thank you for uh, giving us your time as well. Dr. Garland is from the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. Your thoughts around this issue of monitoring, is it a concern for you from a health perspective Yes, it definitely is. Um, In South Africa, we do have a monitoring network. And one of the things when we compare South Africa to the rest of of countries on talking about our pollution levels, we do have to remember that currently most of our stations are situated at the most polluted spots. We don't have many that are in the non-polluted spots, which makes sense to monitor pollution that way because that's where people are exposed. Those are the high levels. But also when we compare it to areas that have, you know, a wide variety of monitoring and background sites and urban, we do have to keep that in mind. And that's not to say that our levels, you know, aren't high in these areas, but just to keep that in mind. But South Africa is very unique, actually, in Africa to have this kind of monitoring. If we look at that WHO report, they say it about how Nigeria, the one station, was one of the highest in the world. Unfortunately, it was built upon very little data, but it was the only data they have. It's the only, you know, one point is better than no point sometimes. But we also have to remember that one point can only tell you so much information. So actually, for me, looking at the WHO, part of it is that how much more monitoring we need to do. And as Professor Kancroft said, there definitely are ways... Um, to monitor air pollution, and the sensors are getting cheaper and cheaper, you know, every year. They are thinking about how can I make a cheaper sensor to put into a city to get at least some information. Mm. But because air pollution also impacts health, what needs to go hand-in-hand with that is also 
the measurements of the health impacts. And that's one thing that we've been really struggling to tie mm-hmm. together is monitoring the, the health impacts um, from air quality because that we would also like to see as management interventions go on is the health of the communities. Are they really improving? Hmm. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. I think we're actually accelerating very fast in this conversation, <laughs> and uh, we need to take a quick break and pause a little bit because uh, we've moved to so many dynamics already. <laughs> and uh, if you're just joining us, thank you for joining us. We're speaking about air pollution. Are African governments doing enough to make sure that we are monitoring that air pollution already? There has been this WHO uh, um, release data that has been coming out, and uh, it states that uh, up to more than 1 billion people live in countries that do not monitor the air that they breathe. Give us your thoughts. Hey, what should be done in this regards? How should there be some form of transparency in terms of what actually is the responsibility of also corporates that also emit so much uh, uh, wrong uh, gases out into the air? And also, what should me and you do actually to ensure that we also take responsibility in this regard? Give us your thoughts. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, Or you can give us your thoughts on our our Twitter handle that's at African Dialogue. Hey, uh, you can also SMS us on at info at channelafrica.org. That's info at channelafrica.org. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. you with me, Benjamin Mushatam, and joining me on our show today, we've got Professor Eugene Kerkross, who is a, a chemical engineer and also got a lot of experience in air quality. Also joining us on the line, we've got Robin Hugo, who is an attorney and program head at uh, the Center for Environmental Rights in the Department of Pollution and Climate Change. Also on the line, we've got Dr. Rebecca Garland from the Scientific, uh, uh, or rather Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. And uh, the Professor Harold Onigan is also on the line joining us. Now, there seems to be a bit of a contention there in terms of the situation between uh, Professor Harold Onigan and Robin Hugo. Do you want to say something to some of the points there uh, professor, uh, that Professor Harold Onigan brought into the conversation, Robin, in terms of some of the contentions she had with some of your views there in terms of the situation in South Africa? Yeah, I mean, uh, whether or not uh, the Mpumalanga Hathos is the worst or the 12th worst or one of the worst, I don't think is really the important question. What, what the data shows, including from the, the Department of Environmental Affairs, is that there are still regular exceedances of, of these ambient air quality standards. And sure, there may be, there may be multiple contributors to those um, exceedances. Um, industry, domestic coal burning, vehicles, dust. There are lots of causes, but what we need is, is serious improvement. And we need governments to be um, empowered. They need to have the, the right capacity and resources to monitor and enforce compliance. We need industries to be held to 
to account, they must comply with their licenses. The public must be able to access um, reliable, accurate data on what um, is being emitted. And, I mean, <laughs> at, a, at a broader level, we need to stop building these massive, outdated, expensive infrastructure like, like coal-fired power stations. Well, let me bring that back to you, Professor Harold Arnigan. In terms of that kind of change from what um, Robin, Robin is highlighting there in terms of uh, uh, coal power stations, it seems like uh, there is an emphasis of change and it's something, it's a topic that keeps coming up over and over again. Your thoughts around that, especially looking at also using South Africa's example, its approach on the energy mix as well. Excellent. We stick clearly to South Africa, the topic of your conversation today is about human health, so we're not addressing the issues of climate mm. change and CO2 emissions sure, or lethal sure. effects. We are talking about the exposure of human beings. Mm. And uh, I'm afraid uh, I challenge again the notion to presume that industry must be held accountable. When we talk about exceedances, we are talking mm. about are these exceedances small and infrequent or for uh, 40 or 60 days a year at to three times the standards, not two or three percent. And the place where that pollution occurs is in uh, ambient and indoor air pollution in coal-burning townships. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to pretend that we don't know where the sources are. And now, 30 years after our first challenge, the then Minister of Environment uh, on this issue, that we need to monitor and control air pollution from domestic sources Finally, there's a major research campaign to do what we call source apportion, measure in townships uh, the levels of indoor and outdoor air pollution and the relative contributions from the local immediate sources, i.e. the domestic burning in the township itself and the regional contribution. Yes, Professor Ken Cross is right, the industries emit huge quantities, but these are emitted uh, 180 meters above the ground and uh, are generally well dispersed before humans are exposed. Mm, mm. So the, uh, this refrain of constantly um, blaming industry when we know what the source is and where the largest health-affecting exposure in the, in the home is, and this applies to the rest of Africa as well, that uh, the major sources of air pollution in the poorer countries are from domestic burning, from mm. cooking. Mm. Professor Cancross, do you agree with that? Uh, um, well, I, I think the the whole idea that um, because the domestic fuel burning contributes to air pollution, um, we therefore should only focus on domestic fuel burning as the source is completely wrong. Um, we should recognize that there are three major categories of um, air pollution uh, sources in, in, in uh, all major cities. That's um, from industrial sources that we've just been speaking about, um, vehicle traffic emissions, and domestic fuel burning <coughs> uh, of uh, highly polluting uh, fuels such as wood and coal. So uh, um, I don't think anyone is saying that um, Burning wood and coal in, in homes does not contribute to air pollution, but simply focusing on that to the exclusion of the other two major categories will not uh, advance the, uh, the cause of clean air.
Well, also, I want to move along because I don't want to stay on this point because there are other areas that I want us to cover. And maybe that leads me to you, uh, Dr. Rebecca Garland, looking at the issue of uh, poverty also becoming a common mm. thread. And of the world's poorest 50 countries by GDP per capita, this report says 35 of these countries are not monitoring air in any of the cities. And mm. I thought when I read that, I was wondering how is the poverty connected to air pollution? Maybe it's a little bit of what Dr. Uh, uh, Anagon is highlighting briefly there, but what are your thoughts in this regard? Yeah, I mean, definitely part of it of how emissions and poverty are related, you know, part of it definitely is through the domestic burning. Um, Not having the monitoring infrastructure in place then also talks to the priorities of, you know, the country for their health priorities. And many very poor countries, you know, sometimes, and including South Africa, you know, we have crises right now going on in the health that do draw some, you know, resources to them and what is the immediate need. You know, if there is a flood in Mozambique, that is what they need to focus on. And so air pollution you know, is something that you do have to invest in infrastructure for the monitoring. Though, like we've said, there are, you know, hopefully new techniques or new instruments, rather, that could still be as good of quality and hopefully cheaper to help to divide, to, um, um, to get over this gap, that you need so much money to start a monitoring. And then also it takes a lot of work and a lot of resources financially, but also the capacity to continue that and to keep them working. And so you do need engineers, you know, you need chemists, you need people who understand the instruments and understand what the results mean. And then you need to also um, report on them. So, for example, I have heard recently Botswana does have some very good monitoring data. However, that monitoring data maybe isn't available to everybody. I'm not certain if it was in the WHO report. But, you know, the things like this as well, sometimes campaigns or monitoring goes on that if the data isn't looked at and isn't processed, then it's not in the public domain. You can't find it and you don't necessarily know what's going on. Mm. So I think there's a lot of different things at play and it's, you know, it's, yeah, Mm. Well, let, let me take it to you, Robin. Your, your thoughts around that, that relationship between poverty and uh, pollution? I mean, what's clear is that lots mm. of environmental risks will disproportionately affect the poor and those people that are residing in lower-income countries. And that's, that's recognized by the, the WHO report as well. So poverty often implies that communities have to rely on the natural resources at their disposal usually in an unsustainable way to meet their basic needs. Also, as, as countries become more um, industrialized, their expansion of those cities also has increased health risks. So, mm-hmm. for instance, in relation to air pollution, we're talking about square traffic planning, energy inefficient housing, burning waste, and, and dirty mm-hmm. power sources. And, and then, of course, many poor urban households do still rely on, on domestic fuels for for cooking and heating, which, by the way, that has been something that for many years has been um, a, a strategy that's been in the works to address domestic coal burning. It's now finally been approved by Cabinet. We're still waiting for a strategy to address air pollution mm. in dense, low-income communities. Mm, very interesting. Professor Ken Cross, do you want to put something into this conversation related um, to this area? Yes, um the, the, the context for uh, poor air quality, um, or there is a relationship between poverty and poor air quality. Um, for example, in South Africa, more than 90% of households are, uh, have access to electricity. But about 40, 45% still use 
polluting uh, fuels for heating and cooking because they can't afford the electricity. Um, so that that's definitely a factor. The, the other is that uh, if you're living in a, um, a an informal settlement without proper paved roads and and, and uh, vegetation cover, um, the dust levels are much higher than than otherwise would be the case. So those sorts of factors, and of course, this is the density of people living in in one area. <coughs> Uh, contributes to, uh, mm. they all contribute to poor air quality. Mm. Professor Arnigan, let me put you into this uh, area. You want to contribute as well because you were also feeling strong about this particular area as well. Yeah, first of all, I need to pref- uh, correct Professor Ken Cross's uh, this assumption. I didn't state that we should concentrate only on uh, domestic air pollution. Uh, that is a false, uh, false implication which needs to be withdrawn. Indeed, poverty is a factor. I use the phrase uh, apartheid uh, air because we remain 20 years after our transition with a situation where the poor living townships are exposed to much higher level of pollution than people living in the wealthier suburbs. In the wealthier suburbs, uh, any sort of open burning or fuel burning was banned early in the 80s and yet it is still allowed. Professor Ken Cross correctly points out that with the price of electricity having risen two or three times, factored two or three times in the last 10 years, although most homes are connected to electricity in urban areas, electricity has become an unaffordable energy carrier. So clearly the access and a better life promised by electricity is not being realized, and the poor are being disproportionately exposed to air quality, as Robin has also pointed out. Mm, mm. Well, uh, hey, we're going to go for a break. What are your thoughts around the issue of air pollution and monitoring? Give us your thoughts. Uh, send us your SMSs on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or you can join us on our Twitter handle at African Dialogue. We want to hear from you there. Uh, remember that we are speaking to experts on the line looking at the issue of air pollution in uh, African countries, using a lot of South African examples, but hey, there could be just a microcosm of what's happening in other African countries. But we know if South Africa still grappling with that particular situation because it does have a kind of infrastructural uh, kind of prowess compared to other uh, African countries. What are your thoughts in this regard? Give us your thoughts. You can uh, tweet us at African Dialogue or you can uh, SMS us on plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Because we have so many guests, let me remind you who we have on the line. We've got Professor Eugene Cancross, who's a chemical engineer and a huge... Uh, a prof- uh, professional in dealing with issues of air quality. Robin Hugo is an attorney and the program head of the Pollution and Climate Change Department for the Center of uh, Environmental Rights. Also on the line, we've got Dr. Re- uh, Rebecca Garland, who is from the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. Professor Harold Onigan also uh, joins us on the line uh, to help us on this particular uh, subject. Oh, I'm also interested in this number of so many people dying from air pollution. It, uh, it's for me, it's like, oh, I never thought it could be that bad. And maybe I should come back after the break and speak to Dr. Rebecca Garland in terms of looking at the issues of how does air pollution actually contribute to our health in our various countries. Hey, we want to hear from you. So do interact with us. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back. If you have friends and family in the United States of America who enjoy staying in touch with news from home, 
Tell them they can call 605-475-1711 and listen to Channel Africa from any mobile phone. The best part is there is no extra cost for the call when it originates from the U.S. So tell your friends and family in the U.S. to listen to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. And every day from Monday to Thursday, we bring you some of the guests in uh, professionals in uh, much of the big industries and also different parts of social life to speak about the big topics of what's happening on the continent of Africa. And today we're looking at this data that has been released from the World Health Organization that states that the people living in urban areas that monitor air pollution are exposed to air quality levels uh, which exceed WHO limits. And also it says that uh, uh, really more than 1 billion people live in countries that do not monitor the air that they breathe. And uh, let's come back to some of the pertinent issues in this regard. And starting this part with you, Dr. Rebecca Garland, in terms of looking at environmental factors. I know that when you look at uh, the area like uh, Johannesburg, where we have so many uh, strikes when it comes to also pick it up uh, strikes and uh, mm-hmm. this is a question that was asked by my uh, executive producer what happens in terms of when you know a country is there's stink beds of kind of uh, uh, you know garbage all around is that also another factor uh, also something that we should be looking at in terms of our environmental health and what happens mm-hmm. to our environment I definitely think it is an environmental health issue. From an air pollution issue, it hopefully would be a short-lived one once it gets um, removed. The burning of waste, however, while it doesn't happen, you know, it might not be nationally always the largest source of emissions, generally because you're volatilizing things, you know, you're burning things like plastics, but actually sometimes the chemicals that come off from burning waste can be quite dangerous to health. Um, but, you know, it's thinking about environmental health, you know, the whose um, numbers that you just stated, the 7 million premature deaths annually, um, globally rather, the, that estimates about one in eighth of total global deaths are from air pollution. And they did say it's the number one environmental health risk globally. And when they do these numbers, you know, the one thing that... You know, I always try to remember is that, as we said, there isn't monitoring in Africa. So these are estimates of what's happening in Africa. We don't know if it's more. We don't know if it's less as well. And so there's a lot of unknowns. This is just kind of an overarching, you know, global figure. But it could be worse if we have such high air pollution um, in cities as we think we might across Africa. And and that question I wanted to ask before I Mm -hmm. went to the break is how does air pollution cause death? Someone would be asking like, ah, it's just air pollution. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and you're right, it's something we can't see, so how can it? (laughs) Um, You know, there's many different ways that air pollution um, can impact you, and it's a little bit dependent on which of the different compounds. Um, But in general, they affect your respiratory system, your cardiovascular system. Um, Some things are only an irritant and maybe, you know, help you exacerbate asthma, things like that. But then particularly things like particulate matter. So these are the small, small particles that are in the air. They're around 10 microns, which is like much smaller than, you know, even one strand of hair. Those can actually get into your lungs and they have been linked to increases in mortality. and so this is this can be from sometimes from you know more acute exposure from short term and from chronic long term exposure. Mm. 
That takes me to you, uh, Robin, looking at this issue. And uh, I know you're an attorney as well. I'm sure you can you deal with environmental issues as well from a human rights perspective. It will lead me to ask the question, isn't safety from air pollution a human or a constitutional right? Indeed, that's um, what I've said up front, that, that mm-hmm. we're one of the few jurisdictions in the world that has this constitutional environmental right um, to have an environment that doesn't harm our health. But there's various factors that, that complicate relying on that right, and, and we can talk about those. But mm-hmm. the, the, the health issue, I mean, we've got some, some of our own reports that, that have been commissioned by its on itself, for instance, on its uh, the amount of um, deaths that have resulted from its station when when we and our clients groundwork in Earthlife Africa oppose ESCOM's actions to postpone compliance with emission standards. The health impacts of that of that postponement were analysed by an expert. He said this would result in 20,000 premature deaths over the remaining life of the power plant. Mm which includes approximately 1,600 deaths of young children. ESCOM's own report, when it, at a time when it only operated eight power stations, um, says that those stations were responsible for 17 deaths and 661 respiratory hospital admissions per year. Groundwork um, has also done its own research in 2014, a desktop analysis saying air pollution from coal-fired power stations 51% of hospital admissions, 51% of mortalities due to respiratory illness, 54% of deaths from air pollution-related cardiovascular diseases. So these are not small numbers. This is a, a serious, mm-hmm. a serious concern. So, I mean, some of the problems that make it difficult to, to assert your right to a healthy environment is that compliance monitoring and enforcement of obligations in terms of the Air Quality Act is a serious challenge. So air pollution is very is very broadly defined. It just means any change in the composition of the air. Mm. So whether that's by smoke or ash or solid particles or fumes. Mm. And if you conduct a certain type of activity that makes a certain amount of pollution, you need a license. Mm. Um, generally, municipalities are the ones that would be the licensing authorities. And as, as a general rule, they are very undercapacitated. They don't have the resources mm, to, mm. to monitor and enforce compliance with those licenses. Mm, that's very um, in- I think you're touching on a very interesting area. And let me come back to you, Professor Harold Anagon, because it takes me to the point of the fact that, you know, in African countries, we're seeing urbanization taking over and the growth of cities. So it makes monitoring even more difficult now. Right. Talking about last year, uh, state my affiliation um, sure. uh, with the Energy Institute at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Thank you so much, Professor. Record, please. Thank you so much. Um, um, in terms of urbanization, one of the factors of urbanization is the inevitable increase in traffic. And, uh, none of the other uh, experts has uh, referred very much to the issue of uh, traffic air pollution. It's certainly in many cities of the world. Uh, traffic, uh, direct emissions from engines and the dust associated with traffic movement are uh, major uh, causes of air pollution. Uh, in terms of current understanding, one of the most serious uh, 
every vehicle pollutant is black smoke from diesel engines, mm-hmm. these very fine particles that Dr. Garland referred to, and there are uh, technologies for solving this. In fact, our uh, South African company, Sasol, the world expert on fuels, has developed a low-sulfur low diesel which uh, produces very, very little black smoke. And uh, for reasons I don't understand, South Africa has delayed the implementation of this cleaner fuel from 2017 until 2020 or beyond. So quite apart from the questioning of how difficult it is to monitor we know what the problem is, or a problem. We know how to solve it. We've got the technology capable of doing it, and yet we are not demanding from our government that they go ahead and implement this uh, public yeah. health measure by insisting on an available technology for a cleaner fuel to reduce black diesel emissions. Uh, Professor Ken Cross, your views? Um, yes, well, we've used... Uh, touched on a number of uh, issues and uh, and I, I guess uh, two underlying um, uh, questions. One is why is the public not more aware of the impact of air pollution uh, on their health? And the second is why do governments uh, not take more active measures to uh, reduce um, air pollution and reduce this impact on health? And the two things go together. Um, because air pollution, uh, as uh, we say, increases the risk of, of, for example, premature death or illness by a relatively small amount. But it affects, because it affects everyone, the, the, the total effect is quite significant. Um, and therefore, um, uh, you know, people are not aware... You don't sort of see people dying in the street in front of you uh, when a, um, a truck emitting uh, smoke passes by, but um, there's a, a small increase in the, the probability that people in the surrounding area will get uh, one of the illnesses associated with air pollution <coughs> or will be affected mm. by it. Mm. Um, so it's this, um, the baselessness, but a relatively small effect that uh, sort of masks the the, uh, the the awareness of air pollution. On the other hand, governments uh, have to face the competing industry uh, interests of um, industries, car uh, manufacturers, the oil industry that uh, that provides the fuel for cars and and trucks, and they each try to shift the responsibility on the, onto the other for not doing something. It costs too much or, or whatever. So that's, uh, that's part of the difficulty in, in dealing with this problem. Um, if we take uh, the problem of um, using coal and hood as a, as a fuel source in, in homes, for example, um, we've been talking about this problem for 20, 30 years, and there's no doubt that the technology for eliminating uh, that sort of um, problem is, is, is with us, has been with us for a long time. But without uh, solving the problem of poverty, um, things just go around in a circle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and in fact, in, in Europe, um, 
it's becoming an increasing problem because of, uh, in fact, the spread of poverty in, in Europe as well. <coughs> so uh, there's this relationship between poverty and, and air pollution. And um, so in, in a sense, until society solves the problem of poverty properly, um, we, we are stuck with the problem. Well, that's how we're going to wrap it up. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to Professor Eugene Cancross, uh, who is a chemical engineer as well there, who has experience in air quality. Thank you as well to Robin Hugo, who is an attorney and program head of uh, the Pollution and Climate Change Center, uh, Department for, uh, uh, which is part of the Center for Environmental Rights. Thank you to Dr. Rebecca Garland, who is from the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. Thank you as well to Professor Harold Onegin, who is from the Energy Institute based at the Cape Peninsula University of Technology. Thank you all for giving us your time. We really appreciate it. And hey, maybe we can come back again and deal with this later on because I think there's so many things that still need to be covered when it comes to this issue of air pollution. Thank you all for giving us your time. Thank you. That's how we wrap it up. Very interesting conversation. Very multifaceted indeed, as you could hear there from all our guests there on the line. What are your thoughts? Give us what you think about this topic. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Remember, you can also find us on our Twitter handle at African Dialogue, or you can email us at info at channelafrica.co.za. It's eleven forty-five. Let's take a quick break. We signing my tabula's already walking into studio, and after our break will go directly into our, our economics update get to know channel africa and all the people who bring news views and great african entertainment you can now catch channel africa on dstv audio bouquet channel 902 Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning. The South African government has intensified efforts to benefit from the growing interest by the oil-rich Gulf states to invest in new markets. The plunge of the oil prices has forced oil-rich states like Saudi Arabia to diversify its economic markets beyond oil production. This is the South African president's fourth official visit to the Gulf region. Between March and April, he visited Saudi Arabia, Dubai and Iran, presidential spokesperson. Bongani Ngulunga explains the significance of the president's recent visits to the Gulf region. The Gulf countries in the main look at South Africa as a major strategic partner. One thing which is common about all of these countries is that they are changing the orientation of their economies. They are moving away from reliance on oil. They are investing in new areas. And the, one of the area of the countries they want to invest in is, is South Africa. And that's the reason why President Zuma has been coming here. Because what ties in between what they are trying to do and what South Africa is trying to do. They want to invest in South Africa, and South Africa is trying to grow its economy. That is the convergence between what is going on here and what is going on back home. 
Meanwhile, Zuma was accompanied by a high-level government delegation to the capital, Doha. Tsepo Ikaneng reports. Qatar was once one of the poorest Gulf states, but now is one of the richest countries in the region. Oil and gas continue to fuel the country's economy. Modern skyscrapers have altered the skyline of the capital, Doha, which hosts some of the iconic high-rise buildings, imported luxury cars, expensive villas, including high-end shopping malls, are symbols of the flourishing state, which has also positioned itself as one of the world's premier tourism attraction zones. Zimbabwe has opened its 19th bank amidst fears that the shrinking economy won't be able to support another financial institution. The country is facing its lowest growth prospects in years, and five banks have folded in the last 18 months as a result of poor management and high rate of load defaulting. The National Building Society is owned and funded by the National Social Security Authority's Workers' Compensation Fund and the National Pension Scheme. Shingai Nyoga reports. Ribbon-cutting, cake and champagne have marked the opening of Zimbabwe's 4th Building Society and 19th Bank. The cheery lime green corporate colors of the National Building Society are emblazoned on the ATMs, but these ATMs were once owned by another bank, which folded last year after failing to find an investor. Financed locally by the state-run Workers' Compensation Fund and Pension Scheme, the NBS is hoping for more success. Results uh, from a tax audit uh, group, uh, Grant Thornton International Business Report, IBR, have revealed that the majority of business executives in South Africa are delaying investment decisions due to a lack of business confidence. The report also revealed that half of them are considering investing overseas. Grant Thornton's Managing Director, Johan Blachnat. It's very important that we invest here because good business people invest in times of trouble for times of growth. So as we take our money out, of course, we also make it a self-fulfilling prophecy that the rand weakens. Our business people are actually telling us that there's a shortage of skills. That is a a real problem that we have had for about the 13 years that we've been doing the survey, and it hasn't really improved. Let's look now at your financial indicators. The dollar trading at 15.73, South African rands at 11.05, Botswana Pula and 10.07 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.68 to the British pound and 0.88 against the euro. Commodities gold $1,257, platinum $1,021 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil at $48.13 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. I'll be back in an hour's time with another update. Sports fans, I am Musibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, Uganda's national football team coach Micho Skretovic has named a 21-strong squad to start preparations for a vital 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifier against the Zebras of Botswana. Uganda are second in their 2017 AFCON qualifying group behind Burkina Faso on goal difference. Their next fixture away to Botswana is on the 4th of June and could prove to be very crucial.
The Cranes will play a friendly match with the Warriors of Zimbabwe in preparation for that match. Mitchell says they are hoping to get the desired result against Botswana. Dream that we are dreaming is lasting for 39 years. To reach that dream, there is certain price to pay. In that regard, allow me to invite you as a partners in the game. Uh, together we are dreaming the dream. To reach that dream, I would request you in these last polishing days before we are going for the challenge, that with whomever you are in contact from our players, whether as a friends, as a cousins, as a whatsoever way, uh, to look and to generate a positive energy that will enter inside our players because we are dreaming the dream that is 39 years, price is very expensive, it going to, is going to uh, true. On to Athletics New South African 800-meter runner Kasta Semenya is in for a tough rematch against Kenyan former world champion and reigning Commonwealth Games champion Eunice Sum at the IWAF Diamond League meeting in Rabet, Morocco, set for the Saturday. Semenya is a former world champion back in 2009 as well as 2012 London Olympic silver, um, London Olympic Games silver medalist. Our correspondent Geshe Miati reports. Kasta Semenya was in good shape at the opening leg of the Diamond League series in Qatar a few weeks ago. Semenya outperformed Yudisum, who finished in third place behind Hapitam Alemo of Ethiopia. She was a comfortable winner by a big margin. But this Saturday, the Kenyan star is expected to avenge earlier defeat by Semenya. Semenya and Sum have thought to be wary of Francine Niosaba of Burundi. The Burundian is the current Africa champion who defeated the Kenyan into second place at the same stadium in Morocco last year. Meanwhile, South African long jumper Rochelle Samai, a second finisher in the second leg of the Diamond League series in Shanghai on Saturday, 110-meter hurdler Antonio Elkana and sprinter Karin Horn will also compete in Morocco. Haunted Cricket News, the concept of day-night test found a new taker in England with board uh, chairman Colin Graves confirming that country will host the twi- uh, rather a twilight test. Australia as well as New Zealand played the first flood-lit test last November in Adelaide um, Oval and the innovation is taking roots across Asia. India as well as Pakistan are scheduled to play day-night tests this year, while Sri Lanka as well as Bangladesh are considering following suit pending the results of the domestic trials. And finally, South Africa's top men's singles wheelchair tennis ace Evans Maripa says his goal is to cause an upset or two at this year's Paralympics to be staged in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Maripa has been quietly going on about his business and preparing for the event and he has already set his targets. It's just a matter of going there and compete with the top 10 guys and seems like I'm already qualified so it, it, it will be good for me to play, you know, few tournaments against the top 10 guys just to get into that rhythm and then get, you know, get get the feeling of playing a top 10 player under pressure or maybe, you know, and, and making sure I deal with the pressure. So for me right now, um, the preparation are going very good and 
Um, it's just a matter of uh, getting my, you know, my play together because uh, right now I need to really focus on how I play instead of the points and stuff like that. So my playing is more important than, than you know, the points. Zoe Sports is at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Well, that's how we wrap it up. Thank you for joining us right here on the African Dialogue. Hey, let's uh, continue to create a community there. At African Dialogue is our Twitter handle. Let's create more conversations there where we can actually gather around these uh, topics that we have on our program. Remember, African Dialogue comes to you every Monday to Thursday, so tomorrow we won't be around. But we'll be back next week, Monday, so do join us there for the latest discussions on what's happening on the continent of Africa. Remember, you can tweet us at African Dialogue. You can also uh, listen to to our podcasts, uh, you go to www.channelafrica.co.za, you go to the multimedia uh, section, and then you click on African Dialogue, and you'll find our shows there, and a lot of the shows are there, so if you've missed one during the week, you can go on that particular platform and uh, stream us live there and listen to those uh, podcasts. But for me, Benjamin Mushatam, until tomorrow, not even tomorrow, next week, Monday, God bless.